I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. In this week's episode, I'm excited to speak with Sarah, the founder and director of Luna Fiber Studio, a textile studio specializing in weaving and natural dyes rooted in sustainability and social justice. Sarah is a practicing textile artist and instructor that uses her weaving and dyeing expertise as a means of exploring her roots and connecting to her ancestral knowledge. Hey, Sarah, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, LaShawn. Can you start out by telling us about your background, where you're from, and how you began working with textiles? So I'm from Rochester, New York, originally. I was born in Korea and adopted into my family, the Gatokas in Rochester, New York. And I grew up there, went to college at the Cleveland Institute of Art. And I thought that I was going for graphic design. Like that's what I thought that I wanted to do. Um, But I took an intro to fiber class uh, during my second year of college. And I was just using chemical dyes at the time, but I fell in love with like watching these fluffy (laughs) fluffy clouds of wool like absorb color um and I got really into like felting and I decided that that's what I um against like my parents wishes that's what I wanted to major in so I became a fiber major and then that's when I learned how to weave and it, it was just part of like the mandatory curriculum at the Cleveland Institute of Art and I really kind of hated it at first. Like I did it. I was like, why is this taking so long? (laughs) Um, But it was after I started like really learning about, um, you know, how so every single culture like on this planet has a textile background and how weaving is so much a part of that um, and how weaving has so much significance, like cultural significance, spiritual significance for peoples all over the world and to see how it how it varies um, from place to place. Uh, that's when I really fell in love with weaving, I think, and like understood the power of it. And then after that, I, so that was undergrad. After undergrad, I I graduated and I went back to the, to CIA and I was a teacher's assistant. And so I was kind of running the fiber uh, department there and working for a professor who was really interested in natural dyes. And so I started experimenting for her Um, and I was just like kind of buying, um, you know, dye stuff off of the internet and not really thinking about the relationship between myself as the artist and the land or the plants that I was using. Um, And not really thinking about the environmental implications of it either. Like, I think I was using, you know, like purchased logwood and not thinking about the way that um, it was, you know, contributing to the deforestation in like Brazil. And just like thinking about like, oh, I'm doing something good. Like I'm, I'm using sustainable dyes. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that was kind of my first intro into natural dyes. And then when I went to grad school, a couple of the women in my cohort had farming backgrounds and were also interested in natural dyes. And so they were like, let's apply for a grant and try and grow our own dyes. I was like, what? 
like we can grow our own dyes. Um, and so that kind of launched me into like my farming, the my love affair with farming and also with um, like cultivating natural dyes. That's such a beautiful story. And it's also just really similar and, and resonates a lot with me and, and how I kind of fell into natural dyeing and fibers. Mm-hmm. Can you go a little bit more into depth with how you began farming specifically? Like what was that process sure. like? And what were those early crops that you were growing? Yeah, sure. Um, So we kind of, you know, I also want to contextualize this with like, this was before the internet was like a thing. <laughs> like, I mean, I think, I think like you, I remember like YouTube had just come out, you know, so mm. there wasn't the like plethora of information, like the wealth of information that we have now where there's all these people that are like showing what they're doing and sharing their secrets. Like we had like four books that we got from the library, you know, and I don't even know if they were in color print. So, um, you know, so anyway, so we kind of just like dove in, like we got, you know, a small grant, but it was significant. Like, I think we got like $3,000 from the university, from Concordia University. And so we bought, I think we grew like, (laughs) like over a thousand dye plants, not thinking about what, like what we were really, or not knowing what we were really doing. Mm -hmm. Um, So we started off with Japanese indigo. Um, we also grew, uh, amaranth, not knowing that it was used mostly as a food dye. We found that out later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, we grew buckwheat thinking that it would give us a blue and, you know, marigolds and coreopsis, like those staple yellows. Um, and yeah, those are, those are the, the plants that I think we first, uh, experimented with the indigo, um, was really fun like we you know the the first year that we grew it um we grew I think over like 500 dye plants it was like an enormous amount um and we also like we had a little plot of land north of Montreal like one of the women on my team um she had a friend who lived north and had an organic farm and so she like let us trade for like you know helping to weed and stuff um and then she uh let us grow our plants there and so we were out there quite a quite a bit that summer and yeah the <laughs> I remember when we harvested indigo the first time like we tried all the different routes that we had read about like we tried blending it we tried composting it we tried uh like water extraction and like none of none of them worked <laughs> mm. like all we all we got were like some pretty like lime putrid greens from it like we didn't get like any inkling of blue from it our first year um but yeah that's so interesting did did you figure out why you weren't getting blue from those first experiments now I totally understand why um it's because we harvested way too late Mm. so our 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 indigo you know I mean we were living in the city and traveling out to farm so I think you know we missed the window by a couple of weeks um, you know, indigo is such a finicky, picky princess. <laughs> and, yeah, <it> um, <laughs> and so, you know, that, that small window, I think really changed things. Cause like it had already started to flower, um, pretty significantly, you know? Um, and 
I think when we were using the blending technique, we weren't using protein fibers, which you need to, like you can't, like cellulose won't pick up the same kind of blues and colors. Mm. Um, And then the composting and fermentation that we tried, I just don't think we did it long enough. Um, Like the, all the variables weren't correct. Mm. Yeah. So it's like, it's taken, I mean, that was in 2009. And I've been growing indigo almost every year since. Um, and it, it took me after that, like, f- another four years or so to actually get the blue that indigo is known for. Wow. I mean, it's amazing that you have that experience of learning what the indigo needed, because it sounds like you have more information about how to extract the blue through having, you know, those experiments and then and the experiments not going exactly how you wanted them to. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, um, you know, I've never really taken a class in natural dyes. And I feel like my learning curve has been pretty steep and there's been a lot of failure you know or I should say a lot of unsuccesses Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know on not successive moments um not successful moments sorry and uh yeah they're all just learning moments uh yeah Absolutely. I started farming for the first time last year and I made so many mistakes my first year, but it, 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 I know so much more now. Yeah. And it's like, it's like you're learning with all your senses, right? You know, mm-hmm. like your touch, your smell, like visual. Whereas like when you read someone's blog and you learn, it's a, it's a very different, um, understanding, I think. Absolutely. One of the things that I learned when I was in farm school that was really valuable to me and also really encouraged me to take those early steps was one of the people who graduated from the program a couple years before me. He basically was like, you're going to learn a lot of things in this program, but there's also a lot of things that it can't teach you. So just do it. Just get started and just do it and learn along the way. And he was so right because even when you read the directions of something, it it doesn't actually spell out exactly what it's going to be like to experience it. And I think that when dealing with farming and agriculture, there's so many particular variables, i.e. where you are, your soil, Mm -hmm. the sun, this Mm -hmm. and that, that it's just like, you just got to do it. You know, mm-hmm. and I it's it's amazing to hear the way that you started and that you just kind of dove in and said, I'm going to start with a thousand plants <laughs> and I'm just going to do it. <laughs> I mean, that's that's really impressive. Thanks. I, w- I was a mess, but. <laughs> <laughs> so can you talk about how you started Luna Fiber Studio? Sure. Um, so I started Luna Fiber Studio a few years after grad school. So I was up in Montreal for grad school at Concordia University. And, um, you know, I was, you know, really entrenched in like the art world and like, um, like the fine, quote unquote, fine art practices and, you know, trying to show in galleries and stuff while I was also doing this, like, um, exploration of natural dyes and farming um and I realized that like that was where my heart was that was my passion um growing plants and then extracting color from them was um something that like 
I think fulfilled me spiritually, even though I didn't know it at the time, like I wouldn't have named it that at the time. Hmm. Um, but something was happening for me where I was like, I need to get out of the city. I need to see the stars. Like I need to, um, I mean, I think I was also looking for a community that wasn't available to me in Montreal and in the art world. Um, again, I don't think I knew it at the time. Um, but so then I moved back home, like to the States in upstate New York. And I just got a job um, in Ithaca, New York. Um, I grew up in Rochester. Ithaca is about like an hour and a half away. And I was like, you know, this is far enough from my parents, <laughs> from my family where they can't like drop in on me. But, you know, if something happens, I can be close to them. Um, and Ithaca is also like, you know, this kind of like small uh, it's a it's a very special town, I'll say, where like um, there's a lot of like um, support for local made goods, like local economic local economies um, that I think it, I noticed right away when I visited. And I was like, if I have any chance of like doing work with natural dyes, like I didn't know what I wanted to do yet, but I was like, this could be the place, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, so I moved here on a whim and I got a job at, um, Taste the Thai Express, shout out. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, I was just, you know, delivering Thai food and I was a waitress, um, for a couple of years and I started slowly, like I had one loom, um, that I got from undergrad in the front of my apartment and I started teaching lessons out of there. And, you know, I, I was scraping for money. Like I didn't have prop quote unquote proper weaving equipment. Um, you know, I was using, um, uh, toilet paper, cardboard rolls as like my bobbins and like just hand winding my own yarn. Um, cause I couldn't afford a bobbin winder. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I was just like kind of like teaching out of the front of my apartment and then um, growing at, at my friend's house. Like she had a garden and let me grow a few dye plants. And from there, every year it kind of expanded to, um, you know, a bigger plot and then more students. Um, and then I was part of um uh, there's a local bank here called Alternatives and they have this um, IDA program where it was like you, they trip uh, double your savings. Like basically it's like a program to help business owners save money. Um, So through that program, I was able to save uh, like $3,000 one year. And then um, this space opened up down the street from me and uh, I was able to pay uh, rent for this small studio studio space for one whole year because of this program. Um, so then I had this like tiny space where I could only fit four looms. And I was also like, I kept, I mean, like my name was getting a little bit bigger, like in the community, like I was doing a lot of community workshops for free, um, just like at universities and schools and um we have a couple like uh after school activity uh programs here where I was also a guest and um so my clientele base was growing and then also my equipment was growing because um people were just like giving me looms (laughs) and I I didn't have anywhere to put them until I got this space so that was really exciting um And 
Yeah, so I started out in that small space, um, and I then um, I was able to start teaching classes once I had that space outside of my home. And um, I think when I, you know, we, we kind of talked about this when we first met, but, like, I think when I first started out, um, I was really trying to you know, just spread my name and like get clientele and like um, become a profitable business. And though, you know, even though like my passion uh, was really about, ta- you know, talking about textiles through like a colonialist lens, like, um, or I, I should say rather like using textiles as a lens um, to look at colonialist histories. And that was really where like, my my interest is in terms of teaching about textiles it wasn't something that I was like um really confident about um using as like a mode of advertising in the beginning of my um the the first few days of my my studio coming together it was just something that I was like kind of slipping into all my classes where I was like Um, you know, we're here to learn about weaving, but first let's talk about, you know, like, um, the colonialist history of, of indigo in this, in this country. So, um, yeah, I don't know if I'm making sense. I feel like I'm rambling. No, you're making a lot of sense. I mean, you're telling your story and I don't think anyone's story is linear. And so I think that you're doing a great job. I'm really interested you know, since you've kind of begun to touch on the history of colonialization uh, mm. as it pertains to indigo, um, specifically the variety that you grow. In our previous conversation, we talked about how that variety was also a variety that came from a form of colonialization in Asia. And can mm. you talk about the roots of that variety? And, and maybe for some of us who aren't used to having a conversation about that relationship, can you give us a, a little bit of a history lesson? Uh, I'll try my best. <laughs> um, and maybe you can actually help me too. Um, so, I mean, the variety that I was given this year is from Naju Korea, and it was given to me by Kenya Miles of the Baltimore Natural Dye Initiative, mm-hmm. uh, who was on your podcast before. And um, this was a just a side note. This was very special to me, being that I was born in Korea, but um, left at a very early age because I was adopted. And so um, this was a very like culturally and spiritually like significant farming year for me. Um, but so I'm not actually sure about this variety's, um, exact history, but I'm really interested in learning more about, um, how this plant was like introduced into Korea. Cause like it's, it's known as a Japanese variety of, of indigo, right? Like that's, um, polygnum tinctorium is like just known as Japanese indigo, so um, right now I'm like trying to research into its its roots and figure out like where it came came from. And what I'm really interested in learning about um, is uh, the Japanese occupation of Korea, you know, during the turn of the century um, from the 1800s to the 1900s. Uh, Japanese occupied Korea and it was like a really 
brutal time, just like, you know, we see any uh, colonialist era of um, a lot of violence wiping out of culture and language and tradition. Um, and I'm really interested in like researching into that era and its influence on textiles in Korea, specifically around indigo and the other natural dyes. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about the colonialization of indigo because I think more often than not on this podcast, we tend to talk about Persicaria tinctoria or mm-hmm. indigo ferris sufricosa, but it's always in the context of America and the American history of indigo. And it's always just really interesting to me to learn about the ways in which indigo existed in various countries in Asia, including India. They have a, a sort of tumultuous history with indigo in the states we have a tumultuous history with indigo and so it's kind of like Mm -hmm. something that I think is throughout the fiber and textile industry and I think that's why it is so important that people of color are occupying places within the fiber and textile industry and I'm wondering if you can talk about the ways in which you see if if this is even a question that is able to be answered but the ways that you see decolonizing (laughs) the fiber industry the way the ways in which we as fiber users and fiber Mm. makers can can create you know space for people of color but also to actually change structurally and, and with the things that we use yeah i mean um, yeah, I think that's a really big question that I can attempt to answer a little bit. But I mean, um, you're talking about like the dismantleization of, you know, a really large system um, that, you know, just trickles down into the textile industry, into the textile culture. But um, so for me, I think the first thing um, I mean, for me, like, I think the thing that I can really contribute to is talking about these issues right like educating around the colonial his the colonialist histories of textiles whether that's like within the actual fibers themselves or the you know the dye industry or um like the weaving industry like it's all there um and really like i think stressing to all textile makers that like textile making is political Textiles are political. Textiles are entrenched in, in a racist history and a colonialist history. Um, and the more that we can like have those conversations, the further we can move because like we're not going to budge anywhere unless we, unless we are having these conversations, you know? Um, so I think that's like one of my priorities within Luna Fiber Studio and within my work and just like my day to day life is having those conversations. Um, I also think that in terms of making space for for BIPOC makers, like, I think, um, you know, I think this, uh, this should be happening in all, um, in all industries, in all places, in all spaces, um, which is people who have power practice their uh, listening skills. <laughs> And um, giving space 
for other people's voices who have been minimized and marginalized for, you know, for, for hundreds of years. Um, so what that could actually look like is, you know, like, I think I do a lot of like nonprofit work and I think about like the groups that I facilitate with. And it's like, so even just like thinking about it in small scales, cause I feel like that's where we, um, where it can show up a lot faster than like these, these larger scales that we can hope and dream for. Um, but like, I think about these spaces where, um, you know, certain people who have power, tend to take over conversations or tend to, um, you know, lead a project in the way that they want it to be seen. Um, so instead, instead of them like taking the reins, it's like you could literally have them take a step back, take a breather, um, and open the floor for other voices, you know, sp and specifically, you know, uplifting BIPOC voices. Um, and like, not just, I don't know. I feel like there's also this um, trend of people, you know, who are trying to do this anti-racist work and, um, you know, say they're uplifting these voices and saying they're giving space um, while still bulldozing over them. You know what I mean? Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that if that answers your question. Yeah. And I mean, thank you for answering it, because it is a really huge question. Um, and I know that it is often, you know, difficult to articulate something, especially when you're living it. Mm. Um, and it's something that is constantly on my mind um, yeah. as a black woman artist, especially working with the materials that I work with. And so it's important to me when I can take the opportunity to kind of cross reference with another artist that is of a similar or adjacent identity mm. and kind of see how they're navigating these spaces um yeah can I just add mm -hmm. maybe one more thing too is like I think what you know since um like the George F Floyd uprisings um like I've seen just like on Instagram I mean I know maybe you're not <laughs> cruising Instagram the same way we talked about that but um <laughs> <laughs> you know I've seen a lot of uh textile studios or textile makers um attempt you know, to start unraveling these, um, uh, or should I say, like, trying, try, yeah, trying to do the work, trying to uplift Black voices, um, people of color. And I do think that that's important, like, for, um, for white artists to, if, if they have power and they have a spotlight, like, especially, like, on social media, to give space to, um, artists of color and like to offer up and share some of that power. But I think that what I've been noticing is that people do, you know, a couple posts of like, Hey, check out this black artist, check, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. um, I did my work. I did, you know, and I just want to stress that like that sharing of power, that stepping back, like is, is like a lifelong thing and it's something that has to be like implemented in everyday um actions and not just like it's not just like a one-time thing you know mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely it is such a huge huge i don't even know what to say it's like a it's such a really big issue it's such a really big problem and i just think it's important for all of us 
to really make sure that we're still working in the direction of and constantly having those conversations and doing the work and really trying to figure it out. And like you said, I do see a lot more people engaging in the conversation, which has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Very, a very, very interesting change. One of the things that I also saw on your site is that you offer various courses and you have a really amazing team at Mm. your weaving studio. Can you talk about some of the courses and programs that you run at your studio and maybe some of your team members? Sure. So things have kind of taken a pause because of um, the global pandemic that's been happening. Mm. Um, so I'm, I'm no longer offering like courses of, I'm just doing private instruction. So one-on-one, um, but um, the last, uh, I, I can talk about some of the courses that I offered beforehand. Um, so one of them, which has been like a really uh, exciting project for me has been the decolonizing indigo course. Um, so that's a course where um, students learn how to grow their own indigo, uh, and then they get to harvest it, uh, cultivate it, and extract pigment from it, and then dye with it. Um, all while talking about like the the history of the indigo plant uh, here, even though we're using Japanese indigo. Um, it's talking about uh, the history of indigo within this country and... Um, yeah, so I, for that project, I collaborated with uh, two uh, different farms. One is the Youth Farm Project, which is um, a farm here out in Dryden, um, where basically they work with disadvantaged youth, and they have different speakers and workshops all year long coming in to um, you know, talk about like capitalism and talk about the food system and talk about colonialism and all these things. Um, so that was one project where I grew indigo. And then the other project is my friend, Amanda David of Rootwork Herbals. Um, she's working specifically with like the reclamation of uh, plant medicine for BIPOC peeps. And she had uh, a BIPOC community garden this year that she started like just in the back of her house. And so I grew indigo there as well. Um, so those are, uh, you know, some of the other courses that I teach are just uh, like weaving classes. Um, I used to teach like just like intro to natural dye classes, that type of stuff. And so I think that, yeah, that answers that part about uh, courses. And then as far as my team goes, um, I just feel so lucky, like, to have these friendships with such amazing, talented people. Um, So one of the people that I work with, his name is Jose um, Gonzalez. And so he's from Oaxaca, Mexico. He's a Zapotec weaver. He's an indigenous weaver. Mm. Uh, He's not only a weaver, he's also a spinner and natural dyer. Um, And he's like, he's a master. When I say master, I'm like not exaggerating (laughs) in the slightest. Like he's so badass. Um, But so he, I actually met him because one of my friends was his ESL teacher a number of years ago. 
and was like, yo, you got to meet this guy, Jose. And I was like, okay. And we just started hanging out <laughs> and like became friends um, and shared like weaving secrets and natural dye secrets. Um, and then when I opened my studio, he, st- he started teaching there and he would teach um, Cochineal class, a class on Cochineal. Um, actually, you're recent guest Sydney Gauze was one of my that's how I met Sydney she was a student in that class with Jose oh wonderful yeah (laughs) and um so Jose actually cultivates cochineal so for those of you who don't know cochineal is um a small insect that grows on the I believe it's the prickly pear cacti in Central America and um it gives this bright red dye like you can get purples to brick reds to oranges actually from cochineal and Mm. um he yeah so he has his own cochineal farm um and now he lives here up in Ithaca and um yeah teaches classes or used to teach classes at my studio um I'm sure we'll reconvene once um things have changed. And can you also talk about the agricultural aspects of Lunar Fiber Studio? I know that you grow in conjunction with having the studio. Can you talk about how you are growing, what type of land you're using, and and some of your growing methods? Sure. Um, That was like a layered question. Maybe you can help guide me as I start rambling. Um, So I grow at Remembrance Farm, which is an organic and biodynamic farm down the street from me. And um, I literally knocked on their door, like I think four years ago. And because I was at a point of like growing my plants where I couldn't grow at my friend's garden anymore. And um, the plot of farmland that I did have access to had absolutely no water. Like, so I was driving buckets of water over to my, no over to my car. Yes, it was a mess. How did you water it? Like, were you using a vessel? No, I was using a bucket in a cup. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That I, but yeah, the hard part was driving it. Mm. You know, cause I only had like, I could only fit like three or four buckets in my car and during a heat wave, you know, mm, <laughs> it was, yeah. it's pretty intense. So I was starting to look at for other um, opportunities to collaborate with um, farmers. And um, I stumbled upon Remembrance Farm is owned by Nathaniel and Emily Thompson. And they were just so welcoming and kind. And they were like, yeah, you know, we, you know, we have so much land, like grow whatever you want. And they gave me a little uh, strip right near their driveway um they're like just grow here and so it's kind of like a work trade scenario like I help volunteer for packing their CSA boxes and I also like babysit their kids sometimes and um it's just been like so I think beneficial for both of us and so yeah so I have a small plot I'm not sure exactly like what the acreage turns out to be but I you know I grow probably I don't know 500 plants a year I would I would estimate and you had asked you had asked about growing methods yes yeah so I just I just put them in the ground I don't I don't know if I have if my like um agricultural knowledge is that um 
mature enough to like call it like a growing method but you know I start them all all my seeds indoors Mm -hmm. um they have a greenhouse which I I think has helped the change my growing game quite a bit I when I first started I was just growing starting in cold frames that I had built like out in my yard um which was really problematic just in terms of like the the frost um so like also one year like the the cold frame um windows closed during a hot day and I lost my entire farm basically like in in May um so this yeah this greenhouse has just been a lot easier um and yeah, I mean, I the Japanese indigo, I, I guess there's lots of different ways that you can grow it. Um, it likes to be really compact and um, stuffed together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the guy who, you know, Roland Ricketts, is growing Japanese indigo down in Indiana. And he basically, like, sprinkles his seeds, like, almost like as, a, like, a cover crop, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but I grow my indigo very differently. Like, I grow it as, like, small tall bushes so like in one row I'll have like three small rows of plants like they'll all be pretty close to each other but they're allowed to grow in a bush formation Mm. as opposed to the way that Roland Ricketts is growing it which is like it's just a very skinny tall plant Mm. but he's he's growing it so that he can compost the leaves you know Uh. um and so he's doing it so that like he can break the leaves off really easily once they dry from the stem and I'm really looking to um grow as many leaves as possible and strip from the stem so I don't mind um having like a thicker stem and having like bushes Mm. interesting but I'm I'm open to like trying his method you know I just haven't had as much seed every year to try that so yeah, and Roland Ricketts was actually one of the first people who grow indigo that I was getting most of my information from. So oh, wow. it's good to hear their name. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any new projects that you're working on? Yeah, so I this is like a long term project. Um and it's at the very like incubation um Uh, stage right now but my long-term goal my long-term project is to go back to Korea um, and visit and learn about the uh, learn about indigo so I really want to learn how to um, start indigo from or I'm I'm sorry I want to learn how to um, like the Korean method of harvesting and growing harvesting and then dying with indigo is um I also am really interested in learning about Raimi weaving. I don't know if you've heard of that. No, I'm not familiar. There. So the Raimi plant is like, um, from what I know, uh, it's kind of similar to like the hemp plant that also, I don't know, that might not be true. Um, but there's a whole tradition of weaving in Korea around the Raimi fiber. Um, and it's used specifically, I think, for burial cloth. Um and I, yeah, so I'm, I'm really interested in learning about both of those parts of Korean textile history. And right now I'm just like kind of in a stage of like learning Korean. And, um, you know, this was, like I said before, this was my first year growing. 
uh, a Korean variety of indigo and trying the water extraction method that um, I think Kenya and Rosa Chang uh, talked about. Mm. And um, so I'm kind of like trying to plug away little by little of, of learning these things and securing funding for it. Amazing. And also, I know that you are working on a GoFundMe. Can you tell people where to find you on social media and the internet to follow your work and also to donate? Yeah. Um, so my website is lunafiberstudio.com and you can find the donate button right there on the homepage. Um, you can also follow me on Instagram. It's lunafiberstudio. Facebook, I'm not so good about keeping up with, so that might not be the place to go to. Um, but yeah, and you can always email me like if you want to reach out like with questions or concerns or criticisms. Um, I'm always down to have a conversation and dork out about textiles. Um, my email is lunafiberstudio at gmail.com. Thank you so much for... Yeah you know, being so transparent and talking about your process and also just letting us get closer to you and your work. Oh, thanks. So before you go, we have one question that we ask everyone that joins a podcast. And that is, <laughs> <laughs> do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Any advice? I think like what I would just say to textile enthusiasts and makers is to is to keep thinking about the histories behind the things that you're using, um, whether that's like knitting or your th wool, um, to really dig into um, the history behind these things, and also to think about the land that it's connected to. Um, like I, I again, I don't think I have any solutions or direct answers, but I think that these these questions around history and also like relationship to the land, like whether again, like that's like um, wool and thinking about sheep or um, looking at dye plants, um, all of these are attached to the land that like, you know, for for some of our listeners, we're here in the North American continent and there's a you know, to think about land and to have a relationship with the land is to also take part and um, be in communication with a really uh, violent history. And I think that we need to start, uh, as textile makers, we need to start questioning what our relationship is to the land and um, like who who has access to this land, um, whose land is this, you know, who has sovereignty over this land. Um, so I think like just asking, encouraging listeners and encouraging makers to ask ourselves these, these really like hard questions. Um, cause I think it can actually enrich and deepen our relationship to textiles and to textile making. And I think it can change. Um, I mean, I believe it can change the world. I think it can change the systems that we're living in. That's a wrap. If you're interested in supporting Luna Fiber Studio, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 129. In next week's episode, I'll be speaking with Lydia, 
the founder and design director of California Cloth Foundry, a sustainable fashion brand with goals to positively change the industry one bolt of fabric and garment at a time. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. I'm really excited to bring to you all next week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving.